The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the fifth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Bethsaida, which had five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you wish to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am making my way, someone steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now the day was the Sabbath. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. <coughs> so what do you think of when you think of the word cosmopolitan? Do you think of a high-end New York magazine for women's fashion? and style and entertainment? Do you think of world-class cities like Rome and, and Paris and New York and Boston and Beijing and Tokyo? Do you think of urban hipsters swinging their latest half-cat, extra cinnamon, milk, uh, soy milk and agave macchino and having their avocado pancetta toast. Does the phrase urban sophisticate come to mind? The word cosmopolitan comes from two Greek words. Cosmos, meaning the world or the universe, and polis, which means a citizen or a person. A cosmopolitan is therefore a person who is a citizen of the world. It's an ancient word word that was actually coined 350 years before Jesus was born by Diogenes of Sinope, who, we are told, used first about himself as a put-down of the local cultures because he said they were not world cultures. To be a world culture, he said, is to learn from everybody, to, be, to learn from all that you can learn rather than just a narrow little focus. When you think of the New Testament in Jesus' time, cosmopolitan does not necessarily grip your lips. Maybe the first thing you think about is John the Baptist with his camel skin suit and his diet of locusts and honey. Not exactly cosmopolitan. Or maybe you think of Jesus, who only has one robe to his name, and, as he says, doesn't even have a home to rest in. And he and his disciples wander from Galilee through Samaria to Jerusalem and back. 
hardly a cosmopolitan life. Perhaps the most cosmopolitan person we, we have is St. Paul, who at least saw a lot of the Middle East, especially Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, as well as, as, well as Jerusalem and its environs. Maybe you would call him semi-cosmopolitan, or maybe even cosmopolitan light. Yet to think of Jesus' world in solely those terms is to give up on the fact that large swaths of the Roman Empire were home to a growing cosmopolitan set of people, places like Antioch or Athens or Corinth or Rome or Jerusalem or Damascus or Pompeii or Alexandria, all could rightly be called cosmopolitan cities. And the cosmopolitans in these cities held themselves to much higher standards than the rest of the empire. These standards included such things as a classical education of philosophy, Greek, uh, Roman, or sorry, Latin, uh, mathematics, science, as far as they knew of science. And their standards include such places as highly engineered uh, cities with paved roads and with running water that came from aqueducts, and a prosperous lifestyle which included many servants and even some slaves. There were even, for example, we've just discovered recently that in Pompeii, they even had fast food courts where you could get a pizza. They actually uncovered that, as well as trendy shops where one could, uh, one could uh, by the most sophisticated clothes. In this Easter season, all the lessons that come from the Book of Acts, you could say were lessons of people, disciples, discovering after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, that God is calling them out of their comfort zone to become what God's people truly were meant to be. Think of Paul, who at first hated Christians, persecuted them, and then is knocked off his horse and in a vision of God, hears Jesus saying, Paul, actually Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul, Saul converts and becomes Paul. For last week, we heard Peter, who had a dream that he sees this tent come down, and all sorts of animals are in this tent, both animals and fish and birds, and in the dream, he hears God say to him, Peter, eat, and Peter says, no, God, I've never eaten anything unclean, and God says, what I have called clean, you can never call unclean again. And from that point on, Peter starts witnessing starts spreading the gospel to non-Jews as well as Jews. In today's lesson, we know that Paul has already been speaking to non-Jews, to Gentiles. We know that because in places like Antioch or in places like, uh, or in places like Damascus or even in Crete, 
we know that he met with people who were not Jewish. But as our lesson begins, Paul is safely in what is now Turkey, and he has a vision of a man from Macedonia on European soil saying to him, we need you, come over. I want to emphasize two things. First of all, it was a man from Macedonia saying that. And secondly, it was on European soil. So Paul, with his disciples, hopped in the boat and traveled over to Macedonia. They first stopped at the island of Samothrace, which is Greek, and they probably got out and had some food there and probably rested for the night. And then they, they sailed on until they came to the port city of Neapolis. And from there, they probably walked the 10 miles to get their sea legs, to get their land legs back. Walked the 10 miles from there to Philippi. Named for King Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. Well, Philippi was a hub of the Roman Empire. As a matter of fact, little, many Romans called it Little Rome because it was so cosmopolitan. Philippi must have been a shock to Paul and his companions. Founded on a fertile plain, blessed with an abundance of gold mines and plenty of water from eternal springs, it was a prosperous city that had uh, a major hub for trade. It had Rome's that led to, or, sorry, roads that led to Rome and to and to Athens and even back to Antioch and and uh, and the like. And it has such cosmopolitan features as an amphitheater, as a central forum for people to gather, as a monumental terrace with temples to, to the Greek gods in the north, and a Greek funerary in the southwest, and a business district in which stone-fronted houses stood next to another, like the brownstones in New York City, or like the classic Victorians on Brookline Boulevard here in Boston. For Paul, and I suspect for his companions. This must have been way beyond his 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 his, uh, his his knowledge, his experience. This must have been out of his comfort zone. Imagine this: a place of such luxury, and Paul being there. Luke reports in the Book of Acts that Paul stays there for a few days in the city, looking around probably looking for a synagogue, but find none. Now, in cities like Athens and in cities like, like uh, Corinth, there were indeed synagogues, but apparently not one here in Philippi. So they ask around and they find out that people who are worshiping normally have a place down by the river to pray. So he and his disciples go down there and find some women, both Jewish and non-Jewish women, devoutly praying. There's not a man in sight. And yet, Paul sits down and speaks to the women. 
I want to stop at this point and point a few things out which might otherwise escape us. First of all, Paul and his entourage are all men, and yet sitting down with a group of women at that river. If there had been a synagogue in town, Paul would have spoken to the men of the synagogue, and the women would have been allowed to listen in. They would have not been addressed directly because they did not do that in those days. It was unusual for Paul and the women to behave this way, and I might say dangerous too. For as Paul was talking to the wives of local husbands without the husbands being there, Paul and the women could have gotten into trouble. To converse this way, no matter how important the subject, clearly took everyone, both speaker and hearer, out of their comfort zone. After all, remember, it was a man in Macedonia that speaks to Paul on the dream, not a woman. And yet he is here speaking solely to women. Talk about being out of your comfort zone. As a woman listen, one of them in particular seems most interested. She's a Gentile, a Greek. Her name is Lydia, and she comes from the manufacturing center of Thyatira. This is the second most important detail. In Thyatira, there were a number of guilds, such as normal ones you would expect, like stonemasons and woodcutters, but there is also a guild of purple dye manufacturers. These purple dye manufacturers had a proprietary way of taking the shells of certain mollusks and also the innards and cooking them in a certain way that they got this beautiful, luxurious, deep purple dye. And then they would take the most luxurious cloth around only the best would do, and dye it with this luxurious, deep purple. As you can imagine, since there was no expense spared in making this purple cloth, you had to have money to buy it. There was status attached to it. Only the rich were purple. And so when Jesus is flitted with a purple robe, in jest at his crucifixion. They're jesting that he was a king, he really, and they're saying, you're really not. You don't even deserve that purple robe. Purple was exclusive. And the people who sold that purple did very well for themselves. As one commentator has remarked, Lydia was part of the jet set of her day. She and her entourage went around the Roman Empire selling purple cloth and making quite a living for herself. There was no Mr. Lydia in sight. It was Lydia herself. And this is the third thing I want to point out, and that is Lydia is the businesswoman. It's not her husband who does it, 
She's not mentioned as a widow. She is a businesswoman, astute enough to have her own entourage that goes with her to pay well for them and to have places to live in these different cities. A large enough villa that she can even invite guests into her home. Paul is speaking to a much higher class of person than most of the people he normally speaks to. Talk about being outside your comfort zone. <coughs> Finally, the last thing I want to point out in this lesson is that even though Lydia is a high class, high profile, astute businesswoman who could do and take and say anything she wants, when she's taken by the gospel, when she receives the gospel and asks for herself and her, her whole entourage to be baptized, as soon as she comes up from the water, she says to Paul, Now, if you have found me worthy, if you think that I am a true believer, then I beg you, the word is in Greek, beg, I beg you to come to my house and stay with us for a while. She could have said, I beg you to stay at my villa for a while. I beg you to stay in my luxurious place for a while. Think of it. Here's somebody up here saying to somebody down here, I beg you to do something. This is much like the Roman centurion when he comes to Jesus because he has a sick slave that he likes. He doesn't say to Jesus, come with me. I'm going to make you cure this person, which he could have. He's, he's used to ordering people around, but said, look, Jesus, please. I'm begging you, just say the word, I know that you will cure my, my sick slave. There's a humility there in her. She is also moving out of her comfort zone, which says, I'm up here, to saying, we're on equal ground from this point on. The gospel fools all of us. Paul, Lydia, <coughs> and the rest of us out of our comfort zone. So what does that say to us today? What, how is God pulling us out of our comfort zone like we see in the book of Acts in so many places? First of all, Christianity is said must be caught and not taught. By that I mean it's not just the words of Christianity that, that make us Christians is by actually understanding what God wants for us to do. And doing it in such a way that other people see Christ, no, no matter however dimly it is in us. Someone once said, if, if you were accused of being Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Christianity must be caught, not just taught. And Christianity then therefore needs to take us out of our comfort zone. In 1965, which is uh, almost 60 years ago, there was a book written by a, uh, by a layman. Uh, he was a, a 
Canadian Anglican, his name was Pierre Burton, called the comfortable pew, in which he argued not just the comfort of having a padded pew, but, but the idea that if we sit in our pew and think, well, we've done our best because all we have to do is come to church on Sunday, and that's all God requires of us, we're missing something. Because if anything, God calls us out of our comfort zone. There are a lot of things that need healing in this world. It doesn't take a genius to look at the headlines that happen these days. Headlines of people screaming about replacement theory. Headlines about people um, going on shooting sprees of people that they don't like just because they're different. Headlines of immigrants who are trying to flee war-torn areas being mocked and being discouraged. And we as Christians are called out of our comfort zone to be the ones who care for this broken world, to bind up the brokenhearted, to be the people of God that shows God's love in this world. At the beginning of Paul's letter to the Philippians, written a few years after Paul goes and visited them, Paul writes these words. I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for you because of your sharing of the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident of this, the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to enumerate what that good work is. That they love and care for him. That they love and care for other Christians who are being persecuted throughout the empire. That they give of their gifts willingly. And yes, they even stretch themselves out of our comfort zone be Christ, because Christ has met, asked them to do so. May it be that we become like Lydia and the rest of the people from Philippi, learning to stretch ourselves out of our comfort zones, to love and care for this broken world that God loves. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.